Every day, God is on trial, especially in a culture like ours, which has respect for exactly no one, right? Every day, God is on trial. God is being judged as to whether or not he is just. I read just a few years ago an editorial that argued that God's judgment of Adam and particularly Eve was equivalent to torture. The author in the article rebuked God for being, quote, the supernatural version of an Iron Age warlord, unquote. The premise of an editorial like that is we as human beings have the right and the moral platform to stand in judgment over God. And as God is revealed in the scripture, we can determine and say, oh, well, is he just or not? Let me tell you whether or not he is just, right? But although you probably haven't written an editorial, and if you wrote that editorial, I'd love to talk to you after the service, right? Uh, You know, we're not writing editorials, but we do struggle in a very broken world with that question sometimes. Is God just? Is what he ordains and allows right? On a week when we had Hurricane Ian, on a week when we know people are suffering in warfare in Eastern Europe, in a world where famine is a thing, in a world of unexpected cancer diagnoses, in a world where Christians are persecuted, and sometimes, yes, even today, in some places, Christians are murdered simply because they are Christians. Sometimes we encounter this resistance to the idea that God is just, or that we determine whether or not God is just, with this statement, I could never believe in a God who, and then we fill in the blank. I could never believe in a God who would allow fill in the blank. I can never believe in a God who this, that, or the other. But we've got to be so careful here, don't we? Because, brothers and sisters, while, while we are made in the image of God, we do not determine whether or not God is just. He is just. And the fact is that his, his precious word reveals in unique ways, different ways in different places, reveals the fact that he is right and good. And a passage like this, Revelation 16, that depicts, again, the future pouring out of God's judgment on the earth, it does so to proclaim the fact that he is just, but especially to proclaim that fact to Christians. Because not only will we struggle to believe it sometimes, we may struggle to take the heat for it sometimes. And so the church that the Apostle John was writing to in in Asia Minor in the first century, they were under the gun They were taking heat from the culture because of their faith. And John says, listen, you might suffer for this. You might even go to prison for this. There's a chance that some of you may die for this. But let's never forget the fact that God is just. And one day, his judgment will be publicly evident. All will know that he is just. Now, why do we need to know that today? How does forecasting God's justice help us today when we're facing inflation, when we got to go to work tomorrow and deal with whatever, when we struggles in our family, we have to deal with stuff at school this week, there's no doubt going to be traffic, all all, all the normal stuff that we're dealing with. How does forecasting God's justice help us now? Well, Revelation 16 actually helps us by revealing to us not only is God just, 
but he's worthy of your trust in the midst of whatever it is you're facing. So let's unpack this chapter, see what's going on with these seven bowls, and we'll ask why does it matter for us this morning. Again, we're picking it up in Revelation 16, and in verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. You'll remember last week in chapter 15, we, John saw these seven angels in his vision. These angels were given these big saucers or bowls, and those bowls are filled with the wrath of God. And so he's, they're going to go, and they're going to pour out this wrath on the earth. And so that's exactly what happens. The voice in verse 1 is most likely the voice of the Lord himself. Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. It is time, right? So verse 2, the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. As we're going to see all throughout these seven bowls, these echo the plagues that God poured out on Egypt back in Exodus. We learned last week that the redemption of God's people, when it's all said and done, is the Exodus 2.0, the, the grand fulfillment of what, what the Exodus event points to. And it's also an event where God announces his judgment on the gods of the age and on sinners who refuse to worship him. And so here, this is, we see this happening, where again, we have sores breaking out on people, which envisions their suffering. And, but it's only those who have the mark of the beast, which as we've learned throughout Revelation, are those who've worshipped the beast, they've worshipped a false god. They've worshipped its image, John says in chapter 2. So those who worship the beast will share the fate of the beast. And the outpouring of God's judgment is a moment of suffering for them. You'll also just note that God's own, those who have, who have the, uh, the seal right of the lamb, they are protected from the wrath of God. So believers in Jesus do not experience these seven bowls. We are protected from these bowls of wrath. But those who worship the beast, well, it's another story. Note the second bowl in verse 3. Again, echoing the Exodus event. The second poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like that of a dead person, and all life in the sea died. So again, we're supposed to think of the Nile turning to blood back in Exodus, and we see the connection here. We see not just a third of the life dying that we had revealed in other spots in Revelation, but now it's all life in the sea dies. Again, God's judgment is being poured out, and so this, uh, this plague upon creation is the reminder of the fact that it all is meant to be in subservience to him. The judgment of not, is not on sea life. The judgment is, of course, on people who depend on sea life. That's the idea. The third bowl continues the same thought. The third poured his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And at this point, we have a, just a, a pause here in the pouring out of the bowls. And note what John writes in verse 5. He says, I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just. The Holy One, who is and who was, because you have passed judgment on these things. If we just pause here, and we've gone through it quickly because we have to. The sores on people who worship the beast, and they're suffering, and they're in pain. And then all sea life is dying, and that's, of course, judgment on those who depend on sea life for their economic well-being and for survival. And then it's not just the sea life, but it's all the springs, all the rivers, right? So there's judgment across the entirety of the earth. And we might be thinking, isn't this a little much? Isn't it too, is it too harsh? Is it not, has God overstepped his bounds and the angel of the waters, apparently there's an angel who's given dominion over water, right? This angel cries out, just so we're clear, 
you are just. You might doubt it when it comes, comes time for judgment, but just know, God, you are just. And you are the Holy One. God's holiness is a reference to the fact that he is, he is separated from creation by his perfection. He, he is absolutely and fundamentally righteous in a way that we are not. So you are just. You are the Holy One. We can't stand in judgment over you. You are the righteous judge standing in judgment over the world. And then notice what he says. And read carefully verse 5. He says, the one who is and who was. Now, normally when we get this formula, we get it with three. Who is and who was and what is it? Who is to come. You know why we don't have to, who is to come here? Because he's come. Because this is the day. The great and terrible day of the Lord. And so here the angel over the water says, you are the one who is and who was, but he does not say who is to come because that day has come. And he says, you clearly have passed judgment on these things. He goes on, just to clarify, for our benefit. Why is he judging? Why the, why the, why the harsh judgment? Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. I don't know what your translation did there at the end of verse 6. They earned it. Some older translations, they are worthy of it. And so here there's a reference not to, to the greatest manifestation of evil in the world which the greatest manifestation of evil in the world is the persecution of the church and the killing of people because they're Christians. And so here, the angel over the waters says, because people have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets in generations past, so now they drink the blood of, of God's wrath. They're drinking the, 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 the fruit of what they've earned. And make no mistake, they've earned it. It is a righteous judgment. And just in case we were wondering, would the martyrs agree? Watch verse 7. I heard the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We've been waiting a long time for this one, but you remember back in chapter 6, we had the souls of martyred saints that were gathered under the, anybody, altar? Remember the, under the altar in the heavenly depiction of God's dwelling? And so here they're, they're under the altar and they were crying out in that chapter, how long, O Lord, how long until you make it right? Our untimely deaths. How long, O Lord, until you make this wrong right? And here in chapter 16 and verse 7, the angel over the water says, oh then, or John writes, actually verse 7, I heard the altar say, I think the idea is there's the saints that were are martyred under the altar. They're saying, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The day has finally come. What we need to learn this morning is that God's judgments are just. God's judgments are just. And all who worship the beast are worthy of judgment. All who worship the beast are worthy or deserving of God's judgment. There's a line here that we have to hold. And again, we've, we've talked about it a lot through the, the series, but we live in a culture that doesn't really want to talk about this. But we have to hold this line and say what's wrong is wrong. God's judgments are just. But as soon as that sentence is out of our mouth, God's judgments are just, immediately Romans 3.23 hits us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and are lacking God's glory. 
And so we're going, God's judgments are, judgments are just, but man, all are sinners. So there's a moment, maybe perhaps of panic there, where we go, uh-oh, wait a minute. What does this say about me? But of course, God's judgment being just leads us to see not only his judgment being just in actually the pouring out of his wrath, but his judgment being just in the provision of forgiveness for our sin. We got to go to the cross. Because again, the Exodus moment, it's about judging the gods of this land. And yes, God's judgment of the world, but it's also about the redemption of God's own. It leads us right back to the cross. And again, as we, we mentioned it earlier in the service, but in Romans 3.26, we find out that Jesus had to be publicly crucified so that God would be shown to be just and the one who justifies. That he's right. He deals with the problem of sin. And Jesus on the cross, he publicly bears the wrath of God for sin so that no one could say God cheated or God never dealt with the problem. No, the wrong has been made right. It's either made right through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross or through the outpouring of the bowls of his wrath. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, I want to warn you that apart from Christ, you are destined for judgment. But man, by God's grace, if you're here this morning, you know that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And so there's this moment where, yes, even as we talk about the judgment of God, there's a moment to say, but God has made a way for you to escape his wrath. He's made a way for you to be made right. He's made a way for you to be forgiven. And you don't even have to earn it. Jesus has earned it for you. I would, I would beg you this morning to be rescued from this day by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, the lamb was slain for us. God cannot overlook sin, and he won't. In that same editorial I was telling you about earlier, the author disdains the idea of Jesus bearing the wrath of God on the cross. It's such an outmoded idea. Again, it's so, it's so hard. But what the author fails to see is that the cross is not only the most heinous wrong done in the history of the world, it is also the most beautiful moment where Jesus willingly gave himself to rescue us. And let's not forget, he didn't just die, he rose from the dead. That, that's, not the, that's not an event where some people will accuse God of uh, divine child abuse. That's a moment where the Trinity perfectly, Father, Son, and Spirit, show their eternal love for their own glory and for sinners because Jesus was willing to walk to that cross for us. It's beautiful. Yes, it's hard, but it's beautiful. The Lamb of God was slain for us. In Revelation, that is how Jesus is depicted. John sees the one who is a lamb, but a lamb who was slain. God's judgment is just, and Jesus bore it for us. Now, we have to live with the reality of being in a culture that doesn't like this idea. So we might, because we breathe American air, we might underestimate God's holiness. I should just take might out of that. We underestimate God's holiness. We fail to grasp the seriousness of the fact that God is other than creation, right? So God is holy. Note the, the, the text here, O holy one, right? You are the holy one. When you pour out your judgment, I can't say it's not right. You're the holy one. You're the just judge. 
Secondly, though, we also underestimate our sinfulness. We think it's not that big of a deal because our culture doesn't think it's that big of a deal. But, and maybe third here, we have to call wrongs wrong. We've got to hold this line. Again, God's judgments are just, and all who worship the beast are worthy of judgment. So we've got to be willing to to say what's right and what's wrong, which in our culture, that is dangerous territory. Because it means, for example, asserting some very unpopular truths at the moment. Something like, oh, uh, God has created us with a given gender, and to rebel against his creation is to rebel against him. And if we struggle to find our identity and figure out who we are, the answer is not to change who he made us, but it's rather to surrender and to seek our identity in him. We don't determine our own ultimate identity. It's, of course, God who's done that, right? Not a popular truth today. Or we could, again, confront the idea that to end a life at its beginning or at its end because it's inconvenient is not our prerogative. That belongs to the Creator, God is the one who gives life, and God is the one who takes it. And so we don't have the right to say, oh, well, this life shouldn't be because it'll be too expensive or too hard, or this life shouldn't go this long because it's inconvenient and healthcare is really expensive and so on and so forth. But you know what? Those are controversial to our culture, but there are other truths that we must hold to, wrongs that we must call wrong that are maybe more acceptable in a church. For example... We could talk about the abuse of the poor. The taking advantage of people who are in financial risk is sinful and wrong. And God says so in his word. And sometimes we don't spend two minutes thinking about that because we live in a wealthy culture, in a wealthy place. Or we could talk about greed, the love of and pursuit of money, and how sinful greed is. Yet how rarely do we repent of our greed and call it wrong? Or we could talk about sexual immorality. And yes, we're all about being against the big-time sexual immorality, but what about the kinds that we'll tolerate in our entertainment choices, the things we do with our free time? Or we could talk about the way we use our words, whether it's vulgarity or whether it's gossip, But some of the things that we'll give ourselves a pass for, God says, no, he's the just and holy one. And Jesus died for those sins. So who are we to say they're acceptable? God's judgments are just. And yes, all those who worship the beast will receive judgment. There's a reminder here to watch what you worship, right? To be careful about what it is that you're valuing above all else. You've got to watch what you worship. And the fact is, even with the outpouring of God's judgment in these first three bowls, people will still refuse to repent. Watch verse 8. The fourth angel, right? The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. And people were, were scorched by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. This is not your average sunburn down at the Jersey Shore, okay? This is God pouring out his judgment on the earth. And as people receive this this physical pain from this heat from the sun, 
the, of course, the idea is that they would repent and, and bend their knee and submit to God and turn to him. But instead, what do they do? No, they blaspheme the name of God. God's judgments are just, but even as they receive his judgment, they curse the judge. Stubbornly insisting that their way was right and he is wrong. And note carefully the wording there in verse 9. They did not repent and give him glory. They did not repent of their rebellion against him of their sin. Hold on to that. Watch the fifth bowl. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed on their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they did not, what does your Bible say? Repent of their works. Again, we're echoing the plagues in Exodus, the plague of darkness here. And here it's the entire kingdom of the beast. The whole system is going down. More on that in a minute in the sixth bowl. But here's the reality, the the sixth and the seventh bowl. But the reality is even as that's happening and people are suffering and the, 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 the government or the society is collapsing, what are they doing as they suffer? They blaspheme the God of heaven and they did not repent of their works. Watch the sixth bowl, verse 12. The sixth poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. It's now a freeway. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. Now just pause there for a second. What's happening here is you've got a reference to that unholy trinity again from the previous section in Revelation. So you've got uh, the dragon. The dragon is Satan. You've got the beast, okay, so the, the Antichrist, and you've got uh, the, the false prophet, which is the, the sea beast who's actually promoting, or the land beast who's promoting the sea beast. So you've got these three, again, the unholy trinity, three members of the unholy trinity. And now they're deceiving, right? They're deceiving through a demonic spirit. Watch verse 14. For they are demonic spirits, these frog-like spirits from, from the unholy trinity. They're performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. So if you pause there, verse 14, so here we've got the unholy trinity deceiving the world, convincing the world to double down in its rebellion against God and to basically gather for battle, right? That's the idea. Why frogs? Well, because of Exodus. Because again, we're Exodus 2.0. So in Exodus, they worshiped the frog god, and so God judged them for that. So here, it's like, you want to worship frogs? You want to worship the beast? You want to worship uh, the, the, whatever you're, you're, this false god you're going to create? Okay, here you go. And so these, these demon frogs, right, deceive the world. The world that was ready and willing to be deceived. And then in verse 15, we have just this pause, this moment, where Jesus just interrupts. And he says, look, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. Listen, you're sitting here this morning and I can see it on your face. You're going, this is a lot. <laughs> this is a lot of judgment. This is, why? So what? Well, verse 15 just gives us actually the point. Jesus says, don't fall asleep, brother or sister. You need to be ready. Because I am coming like a thief. The the reference there is that Jesus' return and this day of judgment will be unexpected. Okay, so you won't be able to to have a countdown clock for it. And again, if somebody tells you they've calculated it, just tell them you're wrong. 
They don't know. But in 1 Thessalonians, we find out that although that day is coming like a thief, it's unexpected to the world. It's not unexpected to the church. We are called to be ready today, all the time for this day, to recognize that there's an urgency to the question, will we worship and will we repent? So Jesus here pronounces a blessing. Blessed is the one in the middle of the chapter with the greatest outpouring of God's judgment in all of the Bible, there's a blessing. If you ever doubt the love of God for you, just remember that. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. The idea is that you will be ashamed if you are following the culture, worshiping the beast when Jesus returns. You'll be embarrassed. There's just a, a, Jesus is saying, don't fall asleep at the wheel. Don't, you got to stay alert, okay? You got to be spiritually vigilant, right? Be, be alert to your spiritual health. Be, watch what you worship. Be careful that you're repenting, okay? Be ready because I'm coming like a thief and it won't be evident to everybody else, but you don't want to be going with the crowd and all of a sudden realize, oh man, I've wasted it. I've blown the opportunity that I had to, to honor Christ in my life. Not that there will be regret in eternity, but the point here, Jesus says, is there's an urgency and there's a significance now. You got to get serious about it now. Be vigilant now. Why? Because in verse 16, the world will assemble in war against God. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now listen, you've heard a lot about Armageddon. Okay? There's a really terrible movie made with that name. All right? Don't watch it. It's terrible. Armageddon in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, the, the hill or the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a town in the middle of Israel. It's a town that sits up on a tell that oversees a plain, okay? A, a big plain, actually, a big massive area that was known for ancient battles. It was a common battleground. It's probably about one of the only places in Israel that's big enough and flat enough for massive armies to actually wage war. So the heart, the heart, the hill of Megiddo is the town where you can see it all go down. So that's the spot. That's the spot. All these, in the vision, all these armies of the world will gather together, traveling on the freeway of the great river Euphrates, and they'll get to that spot. And then it's go time for the final rebellion against God. You know what's so interesting? We're gonna, we'll come back to it in chapter 19, but we never find the details of the battle described. Do you know Why? Because it wasn't close. It wasn't a Hollywood battle where it was like, oh, it could go either way, and then someone had to pull a quick stunt and like had a you know, sweet maneuver, and then that saved. No. There, there's, no there's no fight to it. The judgment of God is announced on the world amassed in, in rebellion against him, and it's done. It's over. Jesus wins. That's it. Because that is where the world is heading... And I don't get concerned about the timing or the nations. People are going to try to distract you on all that stuff. That's not the point. The point is the world is heading here for rebellion against God, that day of judgment. And it's so bad that they will gather together in rebellion against God and raise weapons in warfare against him. That's the idea. And Jesus says, well, blessed is the one who stays alert. Don't get caught up in it. Remember to repent. Remember to repent. Again, there's the urgency issue here that we may get lulled to sleep or drugged by our culture. 
you know, that battle, what is that? That is a failure to repent. And because the lack of repentance is so prominent in this chapter, I just wanted to take a moment to talk to you about what repentance is. And we'll rely on some friends of mine, some friends of mine who did work on this back in 1646, okay? The Westminster Divines. In question 87 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they answer the question, what is repentance? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. My friend Chris Bronze is writing a book on this, and he says it's a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's saving grace. Whereby a sinner, out of true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose, full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's a good definition of repentance. Where as a gift of God, we recognize the sinfulness of sin, and instead of doubling down or justifying it or stepping further into it, we turn away from it, and what do we do? We have this purpose now, and we endeavor after new obedience. This is all facilitated by the grace of God in Christ. Repentance is a turning from sin. You want the short version of that long definition? Repentance is turning from sin in desire and practice. And the stubbornness of the world in saying we refuse to repent, even as God's judgment is poured out, it just begs the question, well, brother or sister, what about you? Are you being honest about your sin today? You know, I I mentioned a few things that we could be honest about. There are, of course, so many more. But the fact is, we live in a day and an age where we're quick to justify and rationalize our sin. I I was having a bad week. That's why I snapped at you. I was so exhausted. That's why I looked at that website. My defenses were down. Uh, Well, yeah, everybody at work does worse. (laughs) But what I do is not that bad. Are you kidding me? Did you see how they cut me off? I'm justified in my sin. But woe to those who refuse to repent. Woe to those who won't call it what it is, confession, and turn from it. Turn to God. Pursue a new obedience. Saying no to that pattern of sin. And I know, I know some of us have struggled with patterns of sin that are ingrained. They're really bad habits that have been lifelong. But brothers and sisters, in Christ, you are forgiven and you are equipped to turn, to say no to that sin. Repentance is a gift of God. And he's given it to you and to me. And you want to say, what's the point of the battle of Armageddon? The point is to say, you don't want to be one of those soldiers who said, I I am doing my own thing and I refuse to submit to the God of this universe. Remember to repent. We've got to have spiritual vigilance. You know, after 9-11, I think there was such a, a prominence of just being aware of the potential for terrorist attacks. And I don't know if you caught this um, it certainly was, was huge in Europe, and I think it's, it was used here in the United States as well. But that little slogan, if you see something, say something. Like, if it looks weird, it probably is weird. Like, pay attention to that, right? And, and that's, of course, true practical, practically speaking. But the fact is, I think spiritually you should run with that. If you see something in your heart that doesn't seem right, you need to acknowledge it. Say something. 
And as we walk in relationship with one another, one of the blessings of the body of Christ is that we may see things in others that aren't right. And brothers and sisters, you can love each other well by, if you see something, saying something. By being willing to have the conversation. To care enough. Because blessed are those who remain alert, absolutely. But woe to those who refuse to repent. There's a clarity here that we're not, we're not holy people in and of ourselves, but we are sons and daughters of the Holy One by faith in Jesus. And so we're free to confess our sin, to say, yeah, I blew it, but I've, I turned from that and I have turned to the Lord. And by His grace, I'm pursuing a new obedience, a different way of living. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, you need to know that that hope is guaranteed you in Jesus. He's made it possible. Remember, to repent. We must repent because the whole system is going down. Watch verse 17 and the last bowl. Then the seventh, right, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Okay, before we we move past that really quickly, we had the six seals that cracked open a little preview of God's judgment, but it wasn't the full dose. And the seventh seal led to the seven trumpets, but the seven trumpets, they weren't the full download of God's judgment. But here with the seven bowls, we've come to that climactic vision. This is it, the outpouring of God's judgment on that final day where it is done. And you just got to love those words, it is done. Because there is a day where wrongs will be made right, And God will enact his reign on the earth, literally. It is coming. And it's accompanied by heavy drama, right? Verse 18, there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Those are consistent with the seals and the trumpets before. And a severe earthquake occurred like no other. Since people have been on the earth, so great was the quake. The earth is literally shaking. But then watch verse 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. Watch out. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Just on the city there, pause. So there's two interpretive options here on the great city. Some people think the great city there is Jerusalem, and that it's God pouring out judgment on Jerusalem. I I don't think that's the best solution there. I think it's clear from verse 19 and as well as the rest of Revelation that the great city is Babylon. And in the first century, Babylon was code for Rome. The capital of the world that has a civilization, you know, that's in opposition to God and rebellion against God. And so the idea here is that the great city, Babylon, it's fractured into its parts and the cities of the nations fell and the capital itself, Babylon the great, was remembered in God's presence, remembered because of its great wickedness. And so God judges Babylon, Rome, New York, Washington, D.C., Paris, London, whatever, it doesn't matter, Moscow, the cities that have housed the rebellion against God and promulgated that rebellion through their civilization and influence, they will face the judgment of God. And we'll see that unpacked more thoroughly thoroughly in the few weeks uh, in the few weeks to follow here but it's it's total judgment verse 20 the whole system every island fled and the mountains disappeared the earth itself bearing the the marks of god's judgment and his restoration verse 21 enormous hailstones each weighing about a hundred pounds fell from the sky on people 
And once again, they blasphemed God for the plague of the hail because that plague was extremely severe. Once again, we're echoing the original Exodus event. Now it's come to its full completion. God has poured out his judgment on the earth. God's judgments are just. Watch what you worship. Remember to repent and consider your culture. Consider your culture. I'm going to say something that's not going to sound very pleasant, but it's just got to be said. Every culture deserves God's wrath. Every culture. Why? Because it's built on sinners. Civilization is broken. The problem of sin is systemic. And so the fact is that unless a culture in its whole chooses unanimously to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, which no culture has ever done that, right? Unless a culture does that, it deserves the judgment of God. And so the the problem we have is that we'll be tempted to give our culture a pass, right? People will say, and they mean it well, Pastor Ryan, our culture was built on Christian beliefs. Kind of. It didn't take, did it? I mean, we could debate the point, but even if we, even if we said that America was built on Christian beliefs, it, it didn't take. It didn't. The only, the only founding father who was a, a believer in Jesus, um, Alexander Hamilton, he didn't repent until his deathbed. But praise God, he did. He repented at the end of his life and turned to the Lord, acknowledging his sin and trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. Our culture is broken. That's an exception to the rule. And so you just got to be careful here. Now, I think we can do two things. First of all, of course, we can thank God for the good things about our culture. Absolutely. Praise God for his mercy and his grace. There are a lot of great things about our culture. So we can thank God for that. But at the same time, we've got to be honest about sin. And the fact is we live in a time where as a culture, we continue to be, uh, have this polarization, right? Where we're, there's a separation. Are you going to worship the lamb? Are you going to worship the beast? It's not a political polarization, by the way, although you might think it is, but it's not. It's spiritual. Ultimately, it's a spiritual issue. And you might have people that you would agree with politically on some conservative issue that you'll find out we're very separated spiritually. We're not in the same camp when it comes to worshiping the lamb. So we can't give our culture a pass. We can, we can acknowledge that God's, God's grace is evident, but the fact is that this culture will be judged along with all the rest. Every culture deserves wrath, including ours. So you just got to be careful, right? We don't, we don't want to sanitize America and pretend like it's some kind of a holy nation, because it's not. It's filled with sinners who stubbornly refuse to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. God's judgments are just. And in the final outpouring of his wrath, we're reminded that one day it will all go down. This is such an important aspect of his wrath that the vision continues to develop this last part, the part about civilization itself crumbling. And so we're going to talk about that in the two weeks that follow in chapter 17 and 18. In the meantime, we just have to ask the question again, so what? Well, this, this chapter is given to Christians as a warning, as a call to urgency, as we saw in verse 15. God is saying to you, wake up, Christian. It's go time. 
And while there may be moments when you're, when you're going, Lord, are you just? The answer is yes, he is just. And there will be a day when his perfect judgment is publicly displayed. In the meantime, watch what you worship. Remember to repent and consider your culture. Be willing to stand apart. Be willing to be different. And we do so not because somehow that makes us inherently more holy, but because of the grace of God that's offered us in Jesus. God's judgment is scary. But the design of God's judgment is to point us to the cross. That we would remember his goodness. My friend John Newton, we sing a lot of his songs. And he, he wrote one called Praise for Redeeming Love. Actually, we sing it under a different title. We sing it under the title, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. But this is what he says. You, you know, you'll know these words because we sing them often. But listen to them as we think about the mercy of God in light of his judgment. Newton writes, Let us wonder. Grace and justice join together and point to mercy's store. Justice, judgment, but God's grace. They join together and they point to the fact that God is a merciful God. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. When we trust in Jesus, God the just judge looks at you and me. He doesn't look down with a frown of anger, but he looks down with the smile of a father. The debt has been paid. You belong to me. Justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment is just. So watch what you worship. Remember to repent. And let's consider our culture and be willing to walk in light of this great God who's rescued us from his wrath. Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us. Lord, we, we humble ourselves again this morning and we ask for your grace. Especially as we think about the difficult talk, topic here of your judgment and the pouring out of your wrath on, on believers. And Lord, help us. Help us to heed the call here to spiritual vigilance. Lord, help us to be alert in our generation, to be ready for your return, to live every day in light of the fact that, Lord Jesus, you bore the wrath of God on the cross for our sins, and you rose from the dead. We praise you, Lord, that grace and justice met on the cross. We praise you that by faith in you, we are truly forgiven and now equipped to live differently. Lord, we do thank you for the culture that we live in and the blessings that come with it, but Lord, we also mourn over its sinfulness. And we ask that you would help us not to, not to drink that Kool-Aid, Lord, not to think that way, not to be influenced by our culture, but rather to stand apart while we're in it, to be lights in the midst of a dark generation. And Lord, we ask that you would continue your great work of rescuing sinners from your wrath. We praise you that you're doing that even now. And we ask that you would use us to accomplish that very task, and Lord, when the day of judgment comes, we pray that you would find us faithful, having trusted in Christ and being willing to be counted as a follower and worshiper of the Lamb. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.